Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. This season, we're discussing generative learning for leadership educators. This is an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. Generative thinking is the ability to create new possibilities, think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. It involves shifting from a reactive or problem-solving mindset to a proactive and creative mindset. Yeah, and as we think about generative leadership education, uh, we think about it as aiming to develop leaders who can navigate uncertainty, inspire collaboration, and create positive change in their organizations and perhaps even in their communities or their communities of practice. Uh, So it involves experiential learning and reflection, as well as the development of skills such as systems thinking, adaptive leadership, and emotional intelligence. Uh, We know our audience is familiar with a lot of those concepts, and so our hope is that we have the opportunity to talk to guests this season about how they're thinking about those things and doing post-pandemic. So we've invited leadership educators, uh, faculty, and other disciplines who've won awards for their teaching, and scholars to talk about artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomena, disruptions, adaptive challenges. Uh, We've also talked bringing on folks that work in faculty development or course design and instruction and support and what have you, and thinking about some of these emerging trends and issues that are affecting leaders in all those spaces. And so we're asking this broad question, how are we processing what's happened and affecting our classrooms and our workshop spaces and program areas and campuses as we're trying to develop curriculum teach, evaluate leadership learning, and build community. Today, we've invited Dr. Lisa Endersby, educational developer at York University, to join our conversation. I love this, and I got it straight from her LinkedIn profile, so everybody go read LinkedIn Friends with Lisa. Lisa describes herself as an educational developer who has the unique privilege of occupying a third space, equal parts faculty, student, administrator, and researcher. Her work lies at these intersections and aims to support those who share a passion for meaningful student engagement and impactful learning and development. Welcome to the show, Lisa. 
Oh, thank you so much. It's still strange to hear someone call me doctor. I defended in December, 2020. And every time I hear someone say doctor, it still makes me sit up a little straighter. So thank you for starting the podcast that way. And hello to you both. You got it. Yeah. Hi, Lisa. We're very excited to have you on. You've been on like a short list of folks we've been trying to, to get on for just the right reason, I think. And so I know about your dissertation and your research on communities of practice. And we were, Lord and I were always trying to find the perfect time to bring you in to talk about some of these things. And I had the great opportunity to meet you. I, th- I believe it was Kathy Guthrie who introduced us. We were working on, there was a book chapter through the ILA's Building Leadership Bridges book series. And so it was on, it was like 2050, something around. I mean, I know that our yeah. article Leadership was about- Leadership Education 2050. Yeah. Right. Right. And the whole book itself was looking at, you know, 2050 as kind of being this precipice of evolution and what have you, and how many, you know, how many people are going to be on the earth and, you know, looking at all the different types of leadership that may be needed for us to thrive. And, at, uh, you know, what is that now? 26 years from now, which now that doesn't seem so far. Right. And so uh, that became just a great writing project. And then we, we've only been in the same, what, physical space once we did that pre-con. In at Atlanta. The ILA. Yeah, 2016 in Atlanta. Dude, yeah, Atlanta back in 2016. You're right. My my quick trip to the U.S. in and out. I know, I know. I wish we had got to you for a little bit longer. So all that interaction led us to having the opportunity to edit a series for the ILA called The Pause for Pedagogy. We've been doing that since 2016, I think. Yep, yep. So um, so just always, always enjoy working with you. And it's a lot of fun. We challenge each other well. We've uh, And we've had opportunities to write together too, which we'll get. Yeah. And ask you about some of that in a bit too. So in Lisa, in your multifaceted role um, that you shared as an educational developer at York, so you really do bridge this gap between practical educational development and theoretical research from like your communities of practice as you explored in your dissertation. And we would love if you could elaborate a little bit on how those elements of your professional identity intersect and kind of mutually enrich each other? And then I guess, as you think about that, how do some of these of your experiences and research contribute to how you foster innovation, support development of professional identity for others in those communities? And, you know, you talk about this in so much depth in your, uh, in your dissertation and thinking about folks on this journey from like peripheral participation to full membership, and then the role of tacit knowledge in that process. Uh, and I know you know about all those things, so I can ask a multifaceted question to you. <laughs> I was going to say, Dan, I, I don't know where to start, but it sounds like you've read my dissertation cover to cover, which I appreciate. So I'll, I'll spend the latter half of the podcast quizzing you on it. And I almost wanted to pull my dissertation off the shelf and just start reading it to you chapter verse, but I won't. Um, yeah, great questions, Dan. And I really appreciate it as you were introducing the podcast, you used some of my favorite words like experiential education and reflection and obviously communities of practice. Um, And Lauren, when you talked about sort of intersections, and and thank you for loving my LinkedIn profile so much, I'll admit I spent more time on that than I care to admit. Um, But I, I think the language of intersections, and while like many things, I think that's a buzzword in higher education in a lot of spaces, it's particularly impactful for me because we teach and we learn and we work often in these real or imagined silos. And my dissertation was really about even if we're in those silos and we feel like that's where we exist, there's a lot of influence and impact that comes from multiple places and spaces. And the community of practice is really where those things coalesce. 
So as an educational developer, um, it's funny when you talk about professional identity, because I have been an educational developer for it'll be eight years this September, which feels like no time and a lot of time. And the role of an educational developer, I think you can have your own identity crisis because we live in those multiple spaces. So at the institution, I work in a centralized teaching and learning center. Um, what that means is I have the chance to talk about teaching and learning at the very micro level with an individual faculty member. It could also be what we call capital F faculty. So, you know, the faculty of health, faculty of science, um, or it could be at the institutional level um, where I have the chance to do some work right now, really supporting more of the strategic planning conversations, particularly around experiential education. So all that being said, it's really tough to talk about a professional identity, what I do, what it looks like, because there are all of these moving parts. I used to, in informational interviews, people would ask me, um, you know, what does it mean to be an educational developer? I'm like, well, it doesn't pass the parent test. My husband's a lawyer. So when I talk to people or talk to parents and say to my mom, you know, like my husband's a lawyer, okay, they have stereotypes about that, but they know what that means. When I said to my mom, I got a job as an educational developer, no idea what that means. And the parent test, I think, is true for a lot of different roles. Um, but for mine in particular, it's been pretty salient. So in this community of practice that I found myself in, um, there's a tacit and I think explicit assumption that we do live in that intersection, but that we have to put on different identities or step into different roles, depending on the places and spaces where we do this work. So there's tacit assumptions, I think, around what we do as educational developers and who we're sort of meant to be. So those multiple identities of student, faculty member, staff member, researcher, um, we are all of those things or we play the part of all of those things. But depending on who you're talking to, some of those identities come out more um, than they might others. So the, the intersection, for example, of scholarship and teaching is, has become particularly interesting to me. The way that we try to explain it to faculty who are you know, new to the work that we do or the support we provide is often, you know, you're a subject matter expert in leadership. You're a subject matter expert in biology. We're subject matter experts in teaching and learning. There actually is, and I say this somewhat facetiously, but it's true, there's a lot of research in scholarship of teaching and learning or subtle around teaching and learning. And so we're attempting to bridge that gap, much like I imagine both of you are as instructors, between this sort of theoretical understanding of teaching and learning and what it looks like in practice. Um, what that also means though, is we can sort of iteratively or cyclically also contribute to that research as well through more formal research channels and, or really just sharing that knowledge amongst our networks. So I'm, I'm still learning, I think for myself, what it means to quote unquote, to be an educational developer. That was really the thrust of my dissertation too. Um, what does it mean to be a student affairs professional using the language I am? Um, is a laden or a loaded term. It's an identity term. And so I'm actually kind of building on that research when I talk to emerging professionals in student affairs and kind of doing some self-therapy in a way, like who am I um, as an educational developer and where have I picked up on what it means to be in that role? Um, so there's lots there, I think. There's there's a lot around communities of practice, which make them different from, quote unquote, just a community. 
it's not just networking. It's not just getting to know people. Um, it really is learning what it means to be and also maybe even more tacitly, but becoming more explicit to be good at or to do this work well. So I've rambled a few different paths. Dan knows, and Lauren, I think, knows too, that you ask me a question, you get a lot of different answers. Um, but I'm really passionate about this work. Like you said, I think there's particularly now a lot of opportunity to think more carefully and critically about how we live in this space and how we invite new folks into the field. So it feels like in your dissertation, you took it as like almost like the first step of somebody being in that community of practice all the way to someone who is maybe very much like established in that practice. Um, and it it feels like oh, between those two points, there's a lot of development happening, like confidence and comfort and even just like finding your people to a certain extent. Could you talk a little bit about that process for maybe like encompassing uh, like the, the beginning of wherever that space is all the way to someone gets to that space where they feel comfortable with calling themselves like a student affairs professional is their identity. And I'll share a little bit like it's interesting because when I got my first job in student affairs, I immediately adopted my identity. So there was no um, question of whether or not I was here. But to your point, it was a title. But I do remember thinking there's so much I don't know about the field from a professional perspective. And then fast forward four years later, felt like I could write a student affairs book because of all of the things I had been exposed to in that time period. Um, but I also didn't come through like a, a traditional student affairs graduate program where I imagine they would have taught me some of that or I would have learned some of that. My grad program was in athletic administration and they very much walked us through how to you know, start as an athletic administrator and then be the best. They, they walked us through that culture and process. So can you talk a little bit like from your dissertation work, like what that process is? Yeah, I love that, Lauren. And the piece about having a title or having a job was actually pretty salient to the participants in my research. So everybody I interviewed was what I would classify as an emerging professional. Um, so new or newer to the field. As a caveat, looking back, I think that definition was probably too broad because as you were talking about your journey, Lauren, it's similar to the participants where I actually recruited between zero to five years or one to five years of experience. And there's a huge difference, as you were just alluding to, Lauren, between one year in the field and five. Um, so for future research or future reflection, I'd love to narrow that scope and look at just sort of really new folks. Um, but what's interesting, again, about new is it seemed to be defined by a title. It really was defined by, I have a job in this field. I mean, contract part-time, full-time, but that I am employed. Um, that seemed to be an easy, if you will, way to say, yes, I am a student affairs professional. Um, and what you're talking about, Lauren, was as we moved through the interviews, that distinction came out. It's one thing to have a title to say, like, I work in this field, whatever the title is. It's another to really understand that I fit, that I belong, um, that I am part of uh, this community or this group. Um, I remember very clearly, for example, one of my participants said, you know, I look around at conferences and in other spaces, I don't see a lot of people that look like me. Um, and that was interesting for me because I saw a lot of people that looked like me um, when I was at conferences or in other spaces. Never occurred to me 
Um, I felt very comfortable right away because of the people around me. And this person, I wouldn't say they felt uncomfortable. That's putting words in their mouth, but they did say that not a lot of people um, looked like them. So there was something different about the title versus belonging. I think the title was to belabor a metaphor was the, the door. You open the door, you get to sort of be at the beginning of that peripheral participation that Dan was talking about. But to move closer to the center, the model I developed in my dissertation was sort of starting on the periphery and moving closer to the center. It's a semi-porous membrane. You can move closer, but you can also move back. And I don't know how much agency folks felt that they had in that movement. It almost felt like the movement was being done for them. Um, and sometimes they were working against counter forces. So I think the process begins with the title. But then a lot of folks would say, you know, I, I don't know what it looks like to move up in this field. I mean, I have a basic idea in terms of job titles, but I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to do that. Um, I think I want to say all but one. Um, don't remember now. I should look at my dissertation. But most of my participants were female um, or identified as female. And that's pretty typical in the student affairs field, mostly female um, or female identifying and they said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen if I want to be a mom. I don't know what's going to happen if I have other caregiving responsibilities. Um, I don't see a lot of people in the upper echelons doing that, so to speak. So the, the movement into or through the field seemed almost parallel and not really connected to moving through and into a sense of belonging. Um, and in some cases, it could almost be you were moving farther away from belonging the higher up you got. Um, this is anecdotal, this is not part of my research, but I think for me anyway, the thought of moving into higher positions felt like I was moving farther away of how I understood my identity as a professional. You know, being with students, working directly with them, doing facilitation work, being engaged in scholarship. Um, admin is a necessary evil in my job and I couldn't imagine doing it all the time. Um, but I think that's where the disconnect happened, right? Like if you're not as directly impacting students, are you a student affairs professional or are you a professional, like a senior level professional? Um, yeah, I think a lot of these folks, they, they felt that they were maybe beginning to belong, but it was almost like a degree of belonging. So the only other piece to that I'll share maybe that's helpful is the, the nexus of an annual conference Oh man, if I could go back, or maybe I will at some point when I have funds and time and wherewithal to do an annual conference again, um, that would be such a fascinating microcosm for this kind of research. Um, because I was interviewing folks who were part of a professional association that does run an annual conference, and I've been to this annual conference before, I was there for many years. Um, there was something about, you know, I see at the conference there are these like famous student affairs professionals. Everybody knows their name. Everybody knows who they are. Um, they're presenting 15 different presentations. They're winning all of these awards. They're you know at the podium. And is that supposed to be the echelon of what it means to be a student affairs professional? Are they the ones in the center while I'm on the periphery? So was belonging then tied to visibility and like being the... I like now I'm drawing on my minor in philosophy from my undergrad, like the absolute form, I'm going Plato, I'm so sorry, but like thinking about like the absolute purest form of a student affairs professional, are they the ones in the center? Um, 
So it was it was interesting too to for them to create the study participants to create that divide. But really, the process of moving through was there's my professional path, but underneath that is this sort of belonging path, and I don't know that they ever crossed. It's so interesting you share that because I had that experience actually coming into leadership education. Like I I got in I, when I started, I didn't see a lot of black women and it was wild because I had been in student affairs for a while and, and I had seen plenty of black women. But when I got to like the leadership educator conferences, it was few and far between. And I almost feel like I probably scared a few people. Like when I did find the black women in those spaces, cause I ran up on them cause I was so happy to see them, but it was very much like I have this title. Like I was program director for university leadership programs. So lovingly all 37,000 Temple students could, could go to our programs. So I felt like I had the title, but I didn't feel like I belonged in that community. And it really wasn't until like the podcast started and even a little bit longer than that, where I felt like I actually belonged and people wanted to see me and to engage there. Um, the other thing I think about, and this is more the, the student affairs piece that you talked about, I feel like my experience in student affairs was a little bit different. And it's because of like the exact opposite of what you said, like there you had folks who said they didn't see anybody like them. Well, I left athletics because when I was in athletics, they said, if you want to have a family, you can't work in athletics. And all of the women that I've worked with either weren't married or they were divorced with kids and like really trying to struggle. And I was like, I don't want to do that. So right around the time I met my husband was right around the time I got to athletics. And I'm like, well, student affairs will be easier. I could have a family, no problem. And it was simply because my mentor, who was on a previous episode of the show, uh, we did a whole season on mentorship. She was on a previous episode. She was a Black woman. She was very intelligent, very like connected. Like she knew everybody everywhere. She brought her kids right to the you know spring fests and the dances and the orientations to the point where I'm sure somebody thought her kids were enrolled at the school, but she just made it all work. And so I saw someone... At a, when I was a coordinator who made all of it work. So I never thought it, it, I never one thought I didn't belong and two never thought I couldn't do this work. And so I guess it speaks to the importance of the mentoring piece in all of this and not just seeing it and, and the identities can align all over the place, but seeing someone you have something in common with gives you that slight motivation. But to your point, if you go to the conference and you're not seeing it, you know, that's an easy way, I think, for us to lose out. Um, I also think about, uh, so NASPA, largest student affairs conference ever, I was scared to go because I didn't think I was going to know anybody. And so I went and Dan and I ended up sitting in the same row and we had seen each other in conferences before. And, and the only reason I went was because it was in Philly and I knew a lot of people in Philly in student affairs. And so I, I went because I felt comfortable at this 10,000 person conference. And lo and behold, I go, everybody from the ALEs and the ILAs and all these in the NASPA region twos that I had been going to for years, everybody else was there. So it was almost like I had psyched myself out. And when I ended up just leaning in and like taking what I thought was a courageous, you know, uh, I thought being courageous and going, I'm like, I have egg on my face because I'm like, oh, I know everybody here. Like, and it wasn't just temple people. It was colleagues I had seen at other conferences. I mean, I want to affirm for you, Lauren, that it's still courageous. I mean, going to those types of acronyms, as we call them, those types of conferences. I remember my early NASPA and ACPA days um, and being Canadian. I have to remind Dan every time I talk to him, by the way, Dan, I'm Canadian. It's a boot, right? It's always a boot. It's process, not process. Um, which is important for Dan to know that. 
Um, and I can get it out to your listeners as well. But uh, I I remember being in the NASPA and ACP, excuse me, spaces as a Canadian. And again, those are meant to be international associations, but it's primarily American, right? It's primarily American folks. And we can talk about lots of reasons why that's the case. Um, and again, interesting microcosm for belonging, as you said, Lauren, like if a conference is held in a particular place like Philadelphia and you know Philadelphia really well, so you know people there, um, it was interesting going to, you know, the international colleagues receptions at these conferences. Um, am I international? How international am I as a Canadian um, versus other folks from other countries? Um, you know, interesting to have a separate international reception. There are pluses and minuses to that, but it was almost like trying to find belonging within a larger sense of belonging. Um, but yeah, to, to your point, the conferences, I think, were also just, again, an interesting microcosm for belonging because the conference is within an association that is also struggling with identity. Like Caucus, the Canadian institution, they did an identity project. It's literally called the Identity Project a few years ago now. What the heck does it mean to be a student affairs professional in Canada? What does it mean to be a student affairs professional in the U.S.? Um, why do you both call yourselves leadership educators? I don't call myself a leadership educator. I felt like an imposter when Dan and I started working on pause for pedagogy because I have a master's in leadership, sure, but I don't teach leadership. I'm also not a faculty member. So they're like, what does it mean? Like, when do I get to be at the same level as Dan? I don't know. When do, when do I get to be, you know, a, a leadership educator? So there's all of these competing forces Yet for an association that is a business, first and foremost, they do great work, but at the end of the day, they're also a business. How open are they going to be to collect as many members as possible versus how exclusive, let's say, are they going to be to keep that identity, right? They become kind of the markers for that identity. Because um, again, I've had new folks to the field ask me like, what conferences should I go to or what networks? And as educational developers, particularly in Canada, there really isn't much. Like we fit into the larger teaching and learning conferences, but there isn't really as much that's sort of tailored, if you will, for us. And I think the subjects, uh, the participants, excuse me, my dissertation, were saying the same thing. You know, like caucus makes sense, right? Student affairs in Canada, that's where I work. That's what I do. Um, what does that mean? What does that look like? And is it different? Like, can I go to NASPA if I'm a caucus member? Like, does NASPA also think that I work as a student affairs professional? So lots of competing forces there. Um, and then if we have time, I mean, it's also the fact that they're now trying to credentialize student affairs a bit more, right? Like NASPA, ACPA, and others um, were putting together sort of competencies. And as an ed developer, I could talk to you for several hours <laughs> about competencies, but just to say that's also another identity marker, right? To be a student affairs professional, you need to be good at these things. That's the explicit part of the tacit knowledge. I love everything you, you just said, Lisa <laughs> and Lauren. And it's just such a fascinating conversation. I, I think about, I was just so curious as a, as a doctoral student trying to, I mean, very much on a path of like, still as a doc student, like, what do I want to do with my life? Like, I mean, I, I was pursuing a PhD in curriculum and, and instruction. I had just started adjuncting both in political science and then in leadership studies at a, in an academic minor at, at University of South Florida. And I really didn't know. I was like, I, well, I remember reading like a, 
when I was trying to figure out what PhD program I wanted to do, there was something it's like, if you liked being a student and being at a university, you might like working at a university. And it's like, try, why don't you check out higher ed administration? And I'm like, you know, like one of these like little career center, like, you know, par paragraphs or something. And I was like, huh, I don't know, maybe, you know, I, I, you know, and then ended up leaving like a job in finance and working as an academic advisor and ended up like co-coordinating the minor. And it's like, Folks have so many, to, to both of you all points, you have different entry points into your communities of practice. And I guess specifically for our audience and like this, the, the context of the podcast, they're identifying as a leadership educator. And there's those studies that Corey Similar and Carrie Priest did on, on leadership educator, professional identity development. And, you know, I think about doing this dissertation research and, and not even, yeah, I mean, really like working on the proposal stage, like uh, this must have been like 2009-ish, I want to say, and or maybe 2010 and, and finding like the Association of Leadership Educators, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's an association of folks that does, and then there's a, they have a journal of leadership education. Oh, there, there's a, there's a community, there's, there's a scholarly area, you know, you mentioned earlier, at least around like the scholarship of teaching and learning, which was very much emphasized in the program that I was pursuing was this PhD in curriculum and instruction. And so we're, we're taking full semester courses on curriculum design and evaluation and assessment and seminars in college teaching and ed psych and cognitive issues and instruction, all these types of things. And I'm going, oh, wow. So there's this like subset within leadership, which I think is what I want to do. And there are people that are doing this work. Then I find the ILA and that they have a leadership education interest group. Although as I think about that funny thing, when you you mentioned like, oh, the annual conference is like this nexus, you know, and kind of like the what all things community wise are judged by or evaluated by like what happens at the conference and who shows up and what are the hierarchies that are, you know, socially constructed there and, and all these things. I remember being like just terrified to even like talk to folks at that first ILA. I was at, it was Boston 2010. And even though I had a session, I was doing a workshop with some other folks from USF and, you know, people that I remember like this, just not having the courage, you know, to like walk up to a table of folks that I knew were all part of like one of the leadership ed groups. And was just like, no, I don't know these people, you know, and I ended up like looking up a friend that I knew in Boston and like going out with them that night instead. I was like, shame on me. But then I remembered some things that some student affairs uh, professionals told me when I was an undergrad, which was get involved. You know, like literally just quote unquote, get involved. And I was like, huh, okay, I'm going to sign put. I, 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 the next morning was like the member community meeting for the leadership ed group. And so I showed up and I put my name on like a, on like a clipboard or something, got on an email list and then started volunteering for things. And I was like, and meeting people as a result, you know, and so like I, I talk about this, you know, it's like the, it's like the entry, it, that was my entry point. And as a result, though, I've done so much autobiographical work on, I've studied leadership educators, what are their teaching practices? I've interviewed them talking about their journeys and, and then ended up, and this is another way, what, what I'm getting at here is this, this work that you and I ended up doing, Lisa, when Carrie Priest and I had that opportunity to do the new directions for student leadership issue on becoming and being a leadership educator, you you were like one of the first people. I was like, Carrie, I've got someone that has to be a part of this um, because I knew about your expertise on communities of practice. And I jumped on the opportunity to co-author a couple chapters with, with you. And so it was a really interesting, to go back to like the intersection, intersectionality um, of you had all this knowledge and expertise on communities of practice. You had um, also done work in the leadership education space, mostly as student affairs, but also from other perspectives or, or 
And um, we talked about, okay, here are all these things going on in the field, whether it's at annual conferences or, or meetings or ad hoc committees or, or whatever it is. And we, so we, we settled on the last two chapters of that issue being illuminating a community of practice where we kind of looked at like, well, how do leadership educators organize and engage with each other? Like, what, what does it mean to contribute to a community of practice? Like, what are the outputs that are valued? But that doesn't mean that it's not complex because it is. And then we closed the issue. Uh, we, Carrie Priest also contributed to that chapter about here are some recommendations for advancing the community of practice. And so I wonder, as we think about that, like, are we doing that as a community? What are like examples where you've observed progress or where further efforts needed as you think about leadership education? Such good questions, Dan. And yeah, it, every time you talk about the the years, like, oh yeah, 2000, whatever was only like a couple of years ago, right? Um, That's fine. I, I don't feel like I'm suddenly getting older in real time as we have this conversation. Just the number, just the number. Just the number. It's all just a number. That's right, Dan. Um, yeah. So I think actually you alluded to, or we're talking about in your own story, one of the examples. So this idea of getting involved. And again, I love that sort of call to action as it were. <laughs> Um, that was definitely me. I was the over-involved undergrad who became the over-involved master's and doctoral student. Um, and I talk about one of the reasons I got into educational development was all the while, while I was doing paid work in the field, I had this very parallel track of volunteer work. Um, so working with NASPA, ACPA, caucus, lots of other spaces, ILA, lots of other spaces and places. And it was a interesting intersection, to use that word again, uh, for me, that when I found educational development, at a basic level, it was, I'm doing all of this work to support the professional development of educators for free. Now you're telling me that there's a job where I could get paid to do that. Huh. And I had already been developing the skills through those, um, through those conferences and other experiences. But to go back to getting involved, there's more examples, I think, of more and more diverse ways for folks to get involved. And I'm excited to see that we're actually critically interrogating what that means and looks like. So as you said, Dan, a lot of the times it was who you knew. It was if you were able to be at the conference to hear about those opportunities. Um, you know, if, if you had the uh, capacity and space to do that. Never a question of intellect, never a question of, you know, valuable contributions, but often it's more work and it's more free work. Like the number of times that I paid for plane tickets and hotel rooms to go to these conferences and do volunteer work. Um, you know, the number of times that I had to explain to U.S. Customs what I was doing in your country. <laughs> Um, you know, to do it and to do it for free, right, was I was able to do that. I had and still have a lot of privilege to be able to do that. I don't have kids. I have a very supportive and understanding husband. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where financially, I mean, it was maybe a little bit uh, of a stretch, but I could do it, right? Like I could pay to go and do these things. And I was also very fortunate to have managers and supervisors who encouraged my professional development that way, all the way from my early days to now. So it was, again, its own form of the semi-porous membrane of moving closer to the center where folks felt like, like I'm trying to move toward the center. To me, belonging feels like getting involved. It feels like actively contributing. And that was one of the main themes in my dissertation research. Folks talked about, I feel more like I'm a student affairs professional if I'm giving back. There's this 
culture, let's say, and I would argue an expectation um, that you are engaged and involved somehow, but not just engaged and involved because you can be engaged, but folks may never see it. Uh, and I talk about this as an educational developer with my faculty colleagues. Um, a lot of folks look at engagement as, you know, my students need to be raising their hands and talking to me in class. Like to me, engagement is visible was nearly the same with my um, dissertation participants. They would talk about, it doesn't feel like it's enough to be engaged with the field, like reading articles, keeping up on current trends, um, just attending the conference. The times I've gone to a conference and just attended, like not presenting, not being part of a association or working group felt weird. It felt really odd to just, you can't see, but I'm making air quotes to just be um, a conference attendee. And I think to your point, Dan, getting involved makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks. It's exciting, um, it's important. And a lot of these associations in our field really relies on that work. Um, but what I'm seeing is, I think a lot of associations are thinking about how else can we engage folks? You know, um, there's maybe not a, many good things coming out of the pandemic, but it is interesting to see that folks are now seeing, huh, people can actually contribute virtually. People can actually engage in different ways. So conferences now, you know, some of their conferences are online or there's at least opportunity to engage online. Um, you know, you can write for a journal and more people can write for a journal now. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, just the person with a doctorate with 20 years of experience. It doesn't have to just be a research article. Um, I've written reflection papers that have been published in journals. Or again, Dan, to your point, where we've gotten to uh, reflect on and interrogate some of these ideas around communities of practice. So there's more and more diverse examples of engagement, which I think is really exciting. Um, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done on if we value involvement or if we see the value in student affairs of giving back, we sort of see this sort of altruistic attitude as important to the field, how are we rewarding that while also recognizing that some people aren't doing that not because they don't want to or that they're not valued members of the field, but kind of to your point, Lauren, they can't. Like they have families, they, you know, they can't do unpaid work because they're doing other unpaid labor at home or in other spaces um, while trying to maintain, you know, a full-time job or a couple of jobs. And I think I'm particularly sensitive to that now working at an institution like York, where we have one of the highest percentages of students on financial aid. Um, so for us, it's OSAP, the Ontario Student Assistance Program. Um, so I'm very conscious of that for our students who are working two, three jobs just to be at York, let alone what it must be like, particularly, I think now for some of the newer professionals, um, lots of contracts, not a lot of permanent positions. So I'm seeing a push toward how else can we talk about involvement? How else can we talk about engagement? And how do we elevate those different contributions? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I have more of a response than a, than a question, but one of the things that I think is important to note is, so I have a whole get involved rant because we do say that to students and most of them have no clue what that means, but what the, the missing piece is, they know where to go, but they don't know if they will belong in that space. And we list all of these things like, it's great for your resume, instead of saying, 
attend it once and see if you can find someone there that you can connect with, like another member, or find a speaker that you're really interested in hearing and go to that speaker and see if, you know, anybody else is interested in hearing. Like we we push or promote it in a way because we do know that it's going to be helpful for them, but we don't seek buy-in. We seek to tell them that this is going to be a benefit to them. And I feel like, and, and this is also like kind of related to my earlier point about attending some of these leadership conferences, everybody was kind. So if there weren't any, like, there was nobody who was disrespectful. Everybody was, was like nice, um, talkative, but I just felt no immediate, like I, I didn't find a shared identity immediately. I think Dan and I connected easily because we were both Florida state grads. And I was like, oh, boom, like you've been the, you know, down, downtown get down or late night library. Like, you know, like we, we probably been in the same spaces. And so like the thing I feel like we got to encourage people to do is finding that shared identity. And, but the get involved, like is so ambiguous yet. It's our, like, we, I mean, I'm sure we have banners everywhere talking about it, but really it's, it feels like it now should be find a place where you belong. Like, so I recently was on my university's TikTok and my message was find your people. And I was like, you don't have to find 35, find four or five people. And I feel like if we're encouraging people to do that, then when you're volunteering at these events or these conferences, it feels more like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing work, but I'm doing work with a friend who I like, who I enjoy spending time with. And it just so happens we're doing our service together. And to me, like really reframing it like that then helps to offset some of the like negativeness that can come with that experience because you're right you're doing extra hours of work staying up late volunteering and you're right there's no immediate compensation the other thing I think about too though and this is more now that I'm on the faculty side and not an administrator in student affairs um, volunteering that service gets awarded so like Dan and I volunteer to run this podcast we do everything pay for everything out of our pocket Dan um, I got a faculty award service award for our work on the podcast. So, in, which ends up leading to like merit and some additional like pay and stuff like that, but it's not directly paid for in that space. And so just having this conversation and surfacing those things, I think can help other folks better understand kind of their why behind doing this and maybe pushing them to find a place where they belong, less just getting involved. But anyway, so more of a response than a question. No, I love it. And I, I like what you're saying about finding your people. I think that's the extension of the model I was creating with my dissertation, because there was a, again, maybe more tacit idea of comparing yourself to other people. Like, again, this is, you know, Plato's true form of what it means to be a student affairs professional. I'm still developing who I am. Like these younger professionals are often quite young. And then I have a background too in student development theory where we can talk about, you know, the frontal lobe still developing and your own personal identity still developing. Um, and now you're doing that alongside this professional identity where the research will say it's connected, but also potentially separate. Like it's actually hard to find stuff that just says professional identity. That's an emerging area. It's very much tied into identity, capital I. Um, but yeah, I think the the finding your people is an interesting and important counter narrative to, I think, the tacit knowledge that younger professionals or newer professionals, because they're not all young, they could be newer to the field, um, are seeing, right? So finding your people is counter to um, demonstrate that you're doing good work, do these things, be in the right places and spaces, say the right things, that kind of stuff. Um, 
And yeah, I, I also recognize that not only was I able to get involved, I also frankly have the personality where it was easy for me. Again, poor Dan, I'm such an extrovert and a talker. It's a dangerous combination. It's funny when Dan gets a word in edgewise, I let him, you know, during some of our conversations because Dan has so many good things to say that I need to talk about out loud. Um, but it also made it easy for me. I have, you know, a very low threshold for, or high threshold, I guess is the term for embarrassment. Like, I don't care. I, I'll get up and talk, it's fine. Um, and I say that facetiously, but then I'm talking to folks who are newer to the field, you know, oh, Lisa, I would find it so difficult to do X, Y, Z. And I'm like, you just go and like Dan was saying, just go up and talk to the people, you know, it's fine. Um, but there, it's very, I think that's a loaded uh, idea for a lot of folks. But again, there's a tacit value of as student affairs professionals or a lot of higher ed folks, especially in this area, um, we need to be extroverted and we need to be outgoing and we need to be people, people, right? We need to sort of have that persona. Um, and I, this is going to sound very like a ligamy, but like I naturally fit that. I enjoy that. That's just who I am. Um, but I have colleagues who are introverts and have said to me before, like, I don't know how you do it, Lisa. Like, you know, but we were moving in similar circles and we would meet people at conferences and people would remember my name, but not remember my colleagues' names. And like, these are colleagues who have done just as much good work. We're also involved, but I guess I'm just louder. <laughs> so I'm also thinking about within those concentric circles, um, you know, who's seen as occupying those spaces. Um, and do people again, feel like belonging also needs to mean recognition and sort of awareness of. Yeah, no, these are just, these are all great, great comments and observations and it's our lived experience, right? And so I wish we had more time. We're going to have to have you on again. Um, Lisa, it's really, this time is flying by and, and, and you're someone who I just, as you mentioned, even if I might not get a word in edgewise when we chat, I do always enjoy our conversations. And when we do get to connect, often it's around the, the pause for pedagogy. I just want to do one more plug, if you will, for that work that we've engaged in for the last, gosh, seven, seven to eight years, right? So if folks haven't checked that out, if you're an ILA member, although some of them are open access, but but Google Pause for Pedagogy, there used to be a regular newsletter that the ILA put out, the interface um, newsletter, and now they kind of come out more in like blasts, but we've probably done 40 something of those over the last seven years or so. And, you know, they're like quick, you know, application paper, scholarship of teaching and learning, like, you know, 1500, 2000 words. If that, I think probably tried to, we tried to keep them uh, under 1500, but, you know, different, whether it's service learning or reflection or using improvisation or podcasts or, you know, all just really, really quick hit, you know, um, uh, really accessible strategies and things that you can take back to your classrooms and um, so I hope folks will, will check that out. Uh, but, we, but before we let you go, is anything we didn't ask you about that you want to that you want to make sure to share with our listeners? The 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 penultimate uh, qualitative researcher question. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the interest of time, I will just say two things. One, absolutely, please do check out and uh, if you're interested, write for pause for pedagogy. Speaking of getting involved, but also speaking of intersections, that is a lovely way to share the work that you do. That sits at the intersection of scholarship, but also how we share the good work that we do with, let's just call them the, the next generation, if you will, of leaders and leadership educators. Um, the only other thing for me, we didn't, I think you asked me about it and maybe I just talked around it, but belonging is subjective. Not one person holds what it means to belong. 
And I would hope for any newer curious professionals listening to this, um, that you already do belong. I went through a period where I didn't have a job in student affairs and felt completely disconnected um, and needed to recognize that my professional identity, while important, was a small and important part of who I am. Um, so never make yourself feel like someone else is holding the identity for you. Um, this is your journey. It's personal as much as it is professional. Um, and I hope you do find spaces and places, as Lauren said, where you can find your people to be on this journey with you. Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And we also do want to have you back because I feel like there's so many more questions we can ask and, and have conversation around. Um, we hope you have a wonderful semester and everybody that you work with becomes the best faculty member ever. Um, <laughs> thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your semester. Thank you both so much. This is great. Happy to come back whenever you want. Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at leadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.